Hello, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of the Strategic Voters Podcast. Today, we'll be talking about voter turnout with Professor Rachel Cobb. Professor Cobb is an associate professor and chair of the Political Science and Legal Studies Department at Suffolk University in Boston. Professor Cobb's teaching areas include election administration, political participation, and civic engagement. Welcome, Rachel. Glad to have you here today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I looked at a few data points for this conversation in terms of uh, voter turnout, especially for the 2020 general election. It seems that overall voter turnout jumped about 7%. And according to the Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement, uh, young voters turnout nationwide increased by 10%. Why do you think we saw this small yet significant spike? Well, I I would actually call 10% spike a a very sizable one. That's the kind of thing that would be, um, you know, this is not just two or three points. This is 10 points, which is is significant and and bodes well for the future. Um, But the rise in political participation generally, there are a confluence of factors. One thing to take into account just prima facie is the fact that Donald Trump was on the ballot made a big difference. Uh, When we look at um, political participation over the last 10 years or so, we had one of the highest uh, participation rates in midterm elections in recent years in 2018 and one of the lowest in 2014 in midterm elections. So the question is, what was the big difference between 2014 to 2018? The answer is Donald Trump. Not a lot of other things in our political system transformed in that four year period of time. And given the high levels of political participation in 2018, that was a a harbinger of what occurred in 2020. So we had already very high levels in 2018, which really did say to a lot of people, okay, we're gonna see really high (laughs) levels in 2020. So then what happened in 2020? Some pretty big things. Number one, pandemic. That in and of itself is huge. But the other piece of the pandemic is that it changed the modalities through which we voted. We started to vote in a variety of different ways and a lot of options were available to people, including vote by mail, voting early, all of this stuff. And so that meant that people had access to different methods of voting, which which we saw also changed the way we voted in 2020. So that's a big deal. The other thing was the racial protests over the summer and, and a lot of um, activity in the, in the protest arena. And a lot of young people participated in that. This is a snapshot, it is an anecdote, it's nothing more. But this past summer, in like late July, I did a poll of 180 political science majors, right? <laughs> Who were participating in something. And I asked what, you know, how many of you have participated in protest? 79%. Okay, that was huge. And we know another thing about protest is that that kind of encourages political participation. So 2020 was a wake up call in a lot of ways from the presidency of Donald Trump and the just incredible um, polarization that and uh, and 
stress that he caused to the system, coupled with the pandemic, coupled with protest, meant that there was an alertness and an awareness and an engagement with the political process that was really new. And, and put that all together and you have a recipe for high levels of political participation. Do you predict that turnout would drop this coming midterm election since voters are you know, more relaxed now? It is possible that turnout will drop as a result. Now, it's a little, this is a little tricky because midterm elections are the sort of thing that we know about midterms. What, number one is participation always goes down. So the question is, will it achieve the 2018 levels or will it go down? The other thing is that um, the, the president's party generally loses seats. So the voters who are going to mobilize the most in 2022, given the past experiences, will likely be Republican voters. Mm-hmm. And that was not the group of voters that mobilized as much in 2020. So... I think that in this case, the Democratic Party has its uh, its work cut out for itself um, in terms of how to engage and how to engage in a continuous kind of way the voters that turned out in 2020. And, and so, yes, I think we can anticipate a decline at the same time. And as I noted, the, the fact of this increase that we saw, one of the things that we know about voting is that there is a bit of habit formation that begins. Once you vote, you realize you can vote. Right. <laughs> and that is a, a, a virtuous cycle that can really uh, open up for you. And the other piece of it is that you're now a voter, which means you're on the voter rolls, which means that you're going to be contacted by the campaigns. And that in and of itself is a reminder that there's an election coming up and also that you matter and you're part of something. So uh, I don't think we're going to see all of them go away. It's just that it might go down a bit. So if the president's party generally loses seats in the midterm election, that kind of tells me that um, the voting pattern depends heavily on party affiliation. Then does policy matter for the average voter? I would say yes, because what parties do is they organize a set of principles and thinking for voters into a platform that has a series of policy preferences that provides a shortcut, what an information shortcut for voters so that they don't have to know every single last thing about the policy preferences of an individual candidate. They get to, they, they say, oh, I broadly believe in these things. This person belongs to this team. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to vote that team because it's, it's easier for me and I can see that you were a member of that team and I, be, and I believe in that team. So it's a, it's a shortcut and it's a cue mm-hmm. and it saves voters time and it saves them energy. If we didn't have parties, we would be in a situation where everybody would have to spend a lot of time getting to know every individual candidate. And though in the abstract, that sounds so wonderful in our real lives when we're so busy, getting to know every single candidate and every single way they might vote and, you know, et cetera, is really tricky. 
Mm-hmm. So parties can solve that problem for us. So when it comes to voting, uh, parties serve as a package of beliefs. If someone is running on the Republican or Democratic ticket, a voter can feel um, relatively confident that their beliefs are being represented. Uh, do you feel like we're going away a little bit from that? For example, the introduction of Bernie Sanders into the Democratic Party, which created this further left movement, mainly with the young voters, and even the introduction of Donald Trump into the Republican Party, which created this opposite alt-right group, um, or at least took them onto the national stage. If we keep that going, if candidates keep running on a party ticket that doesn't truly represent their beliefs, would this packaged belief system work in the future? Well, you're right. The, 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 uh, there's a, a major tension in the United States within our political party system because mm-hmm. we have two. And given the way we run elections and the way we run our legislatures, it's virtually impossible for us to have more than two. But let's take a moment and imagine a world where we had many parties. Then we could have the Labor Party and the Green Party and the Far Right Party and the Centrist Party and the This Party and the That Party. Mm-hmm. And people would be able to identify with those parties and have a little bit more sort of of their policy packages in that makes a little bit more sense to them on the one hand. And then those parties would have to form a coalition with others in order to get things passed. And so it would encourage that level of negotiation. Mm -hmm. And that sounds really great (laughs) in some ways. But but let's be clear, right? There are a lot of countries that have multi-party systems, and it's not as if their politics are so much more amazing than ours, right? I mean, we have to be realists about this, that there's no panacea, but there are, but there are other ways of organizing ourselves and other ways of doing things. The problem in the United States or the challenge in the United States is that these parties are really big tents and they have to accommodate a wide range of policy positions within that broad tent that is, that pulls at the edges of it and gets everybody into fights and arguments about where the party should be and what, how the party should organize itself um, and what it's and, and where it goes. And, and the other challenge is, of course, like who they're beholden to. And so, and what masters they serve because they have to, they have to raise money. Um, they have to select which candidates they're going to support with who is, who they think is actually going to win elected office, etc. All right. You know, one last thing I wanted to discuss with you, going back to voter turnout, is uh, encouragement. Everyone is so motivated, at least not everyone, everyone who votes is so motivated to vote during the general election. Um, but how do we encourage more voters to participate in more elections, midterm elections, and even local elections? Okay. There are some technical things you can do. And then there's bigger things you can do. Mm -hmm. The technical things are, first of all, one of one of the things we know is that if you um, uh, put municipal elections in the same years as federal elections, i.e. they are not scheduled in odd years, but instead scheduled in even years, turnout goes up. 
So if you re, if your goal is just pure turnout in municipal elections, that's one you know quote unquote easy fix. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is actually the the parties are doing a lot of raising money and big donor stuff to do political ads and candidate recruitment, et cetera. Uh, but they are, but the the kind of party building mobilization piece is not something that they do as much, and they could do more of. So there could be a world which we don't really have at all levels, a world of um, really local party building that results in outreach to lots of different people. Um, to encourage voting that is different than what we have now. The former governor of Massachusetts, Michael Dukakis, who ran for governor, sorry, ran for president in 1988, um, is a big uh, proponent of, you know, a, a, a precinct captain on every street corner recruiting everybody in that neighborhood to go vote and to do everything else. That is an effective strategy. It's heavy duty, face-to-face or phone or real contact with a lot of people. That is the level of mobilization that happens in presidential elections. It doesn't happen at other times. Um, And it doesn't happen at other times, one, because there just isn't that national campaign that is as organized. We, I mean, the weird thing about American politics is we literally, you know, campaign's over, we pack up our bags and we go home. And then you have to recreate the whole thing the next time. So that's a, that's, no, no way to run a business, right? right, <laughs> right? It's right. completely inefficient. So more coordinated contact and connection. One of the things that um, I have observed over the years as a political science professor, we have politicians come all the time and they're wonderful, right? They're, 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 they're all great people and they know how to connect with students and it's always great. Invariably, the students ask a question like, why don't you care about the issues that I care about? And the response is always, well, you don't vote. Now, as I've thought about that, I thought, wow, the way that they're responding to a student question is to shame them. It's not to invite them in and to say, well, what are you concerned about? It is to make them feel bad for actions that they have not taken and perhaps not learned how to do. Right. So I think the other piece of this puzzle of political participation is a real shift in how we approach young people, especially because that's who I'm the most uh, connected to as a demographic group in inviting them into the political process rather than um, continuing to make them feel terrible for not knowing what their education system has failed to inform them of. Right. We do need the education system to help in that area. Um, Well, any final thoughts today? Well, I do believe that engagement makes a difference and I have seen it work. And even I'll give you an example. I got a lovely, so I'm teaching a one credit civics class. Uh, Our first assignment after filling out some surveys, it was to write a letter to a um, federal official of some kind. 
I got a note from a student said that, I don't even know what the issue was, wrote a note, I, um, wrote a note to, uh, who, who said, look, I, I sent my letter to my representative and I'm getting helped. I, I got, I got a response within 24 hours. Well, that's awesome. You'd never know until you try. You'd never know. So sometimes just that little one-on-one -on -one connection can, who knows what this was or what difference this is going to make in this person's life, but political participation sometimes really can be life-changing and, and engaging has its has has real advantages and and it's not just voting it's writing it's connecting but suddenly you're part of something bigger than yourself so i do think for all of the problems that we have in our system we we do also have a system where there are good people working at all levels of government who really are trying their hardest that's great to hear rachel thank you so much for joining me today i really appreciate it it's been a pleasure thank you if you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to our podcast. Our podcast is available on all major platforms.